This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03 on Thursday afternoon, April 7th, Major League Baseball's opening day. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour. I'm Rob Hart. Top streaming companies continue their hunt for new content, especially when it comes to live sports. We'll talk about that in our next segment. But right now, the weekly tally of jobless claims leads today's economic data. We're joined by Greg McBride, Chief Financial Analyst, Bankrate.com, based in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Uh, initial jobless claims end for the week ending April 2nd, 166,000. That is the lowest number since 1968. Uh, once again, bolstering the Fed's contention that they can raise interest rates without uh, damaging the job market. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, job market certainly, you know, extremely tight. Uh, employers trying to hang on to who they have, and we see that not only in terms of those initial claims, but even the continuing claims uh, quite low. I mean, this is the strongest labor market of our lifetimes. Uh, I'm a little skeptical that the Fed's going to be able to, you know, come through unscathed on that uh, by the time they raise interest rates as much as they are likely going to need to to tame inflation. But, uh, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. When, it, when there's been a great deal of discussion in, in when Fed governors meet, the Secretary of the Treasury talking about inflation, that uh, the Federal Reserve can engineer a quote-unquote soft landing. What does a soft landing look like? Is it a, uh, a, a an on-paper recession where the economy contracts but nobody really notices? Is it uh, job growth uh, into the four-digit range? You know, what does a soft landing look like as far as the Fed is concerned? Uh, soft landing, you know, this is the old, uh, you know, any flight that lands is a good flight. Uh, uh, you know, a soft landing is avoiding a recession. So it's, but history is not really on their side. I mean, I think the best corollaries, we look back to 1994, 28 years ago, uh, inflation was picking up. The economy was was overheating, Fed raised rates very suddenly and, and repeatedly. Um, bond market really got hammered. But in the end, it achieved that soft landing. The economy did, you know, growth moderated, inflation came back down, and we had another six years of economic expansion before the next recession. So that was, you know, that was a very turbulent time uh, in terms of uh, the impact of rising interest rates on, on financial markets, but it achieved that soft landing from an economic perspective. How many uh, were, How many job openings are there per unemployed person right now? Because you could, I mean, just as how in the last decade there was a lot of discussion about the jobless recovery from the uh, from from the the 2008 economic downturn. Uh, this decade, you could see the exact opposite of that being the the full employment recession. 
Yeah, it's about 1.4 openings per unemployed person. And, and, you know, you're right. That term jobless recovery, which was part of the lexicon, not just in the last uh, economic coming out of the last recession, but the last two recessions. Um, And yet we haven't heard that this time around. Yeah, so we've kind of picked a different poison. The poison we've got this time is inflation, which is running at a 40 year high. And that's why the Fed, uh, you know, needs to get on their horse and kind of chase this down. And it's interesting just looking at uh, rate increases over time, that period in the 1990s in which we look back on with great fondness now, that economic expansion from 1994 through 2001, uh, interest rates were 5 or 6%, the federal funds rate consistently during that time. And now rates are still practically near zero, and we're talking about uh, punishing interest rate hikes that are a fraction of what they were nearly 30 years ago. Yeah, we've been really spoiled by really two decades of very low interest rates. Um, And so, you know, raising interest rates even pretty dramatically from these low levels, you know, relative to where they had been a few decades ago, we'll still compare very favorably. But uh, it is having an impact in the here and now. The increase in mortgage rates since the beginning of the year, Rob, is it has taken away enough buying power from a would-be home buyer. Uh, it's akin to a 15% increase in home prices. So on top of the robust depreciation, it's like tacking another 15% on there, given the uh, rise in mortgage rates. Thanks for joining us, Greg McBride, Chief Financial Analyst, Bankrate.com. Coming up, streaming companies look to sports as they work to upgrade their content. Lunch money for all generations. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Major streaming companies, including Netflix and Disney, are looking at sports leagues to boost their bottom lines. Let's talk about this with Tom Layson, media analyst based in Seattle, Washington. You can find him on Twitter, at Tom Layson. Tom, thanks for joining us today. And this is this is on beyond a partnership with a league. This is buying a league outright. Absolutely. It's a it's a whole new model, not just rights, but the company itself. And I do want to add, Rob, this is all basically speculation by media analysts. Um, there may be talks on these deals, but there may not be as well. But the point is that streamers need content and the price of those rights, as you referred to, just keeps exploding upward. So the thinking is, well, maybe we just buy the whole shebang. And a good example of that, um, CNBC reports that Disney looked at the UFC back in 2016 for $4.3 billion dollars. Now, Disney didn't buy the league, but ESPN bought some of the rights. And when those rights are up for renewal in 25, guess what? Just the rights are going to be more than the $4.3 billion that they could have bought the company for back in 2016. So now you start looking at some of these niche leagues like UFC, Formula One, WWE, and maybe streamers get in there and own these leagues instead of constantly beating each other up to bid up those rights. And this is, uh, once again, another chapter in the evolution of streaming services where uh, 12 years ago, maybe 2010, 2011, uh, it was all about libraries, and then it became original scripted content, and now it's moving on to live sports, and maybe we're lapping that and getting into sports league ownership. Because uh, it seems like uh, having live sports now is kind of like the last frontier now for streaming services. It is, and it's kind of the last. It's it's interesting. It's the last frontier, really, in a lot of ways for for broadcast television and traditional media. And it's a it's a place that the streamers can come in, possibly, and you know have an impact. Um, you know, you're looking at companies like Netflix and Apple or Amazon and Disney. Um, and in addition to doing the games in the leagues, they have all these other. Um, pieces that they can do. They can do theme parks and merch and gaming on their platforms. 
all kinds of affiliated products um, come their way once they own those leagues beyond the rights. So, you know, Netflix, for instance, had this surprise hit with Drive to Survive, um, which is a Formula One thing, which is getting to be important here in the United States with three races on the schedule now. But you have to remember, streaming is global. And um, that might be, a, you know, a cherry laying right there um, for somebody to pick up. And and lastly, and very quickly, uh, since today is Major League Baseball opening day, it is also uh, the debut for uh, a number of streaming services that will be showing at least uh, some elements of the Major League Baseball schedule. Apple has some Friday night games. NBC and Peacock uh, have the uh, Sunday late Sunday morning uh, matinee games uh, throughout the baseball season. And uh, it's probably the, the test pilot for a major expansion in streaming offerings when it comes to baseball. It is, but that model's probably going to be different because, you know, swallowing a purchase on Major League Baseball or the NFL is, is out of reach. So those are rights deals, and those rights deals are going to keep getting more and more expensive as, as that pie gets sliced up thinner and thinner between streamers. It'll be interesting to see if, if that happens or if consolidation happens a little bit if the numbers aren't there. That'll be interesting to see. We've come a long way, Tom, from uh, CBS owning the Yankees 60 years ago. Thanks for joining us. Tom Layson, media analyst based in Washington, you can, uh, Seattle, Washington. You can find him on Twitter at Tom Layson. Coming up next, protecting the physical infrastructure from cyber criminals. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Listen to every MLB game live. The deep left center field, it is high, it is far, it is gone. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. And watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field, it's going to go. Alvarez ties the game. Subscribe to at bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. The only program dedicated to currency events. You're listening to the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Alerts are high over potential cyber crimes from overseas, and the potential targets are critical parts of the U.S. infrastructure. Let's discuss what can and is being done with Jerry Irvine, CIO of Prescient Solutions and member of the U.S. Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force based in Chicago. Jerry, thanks for joining us today. Uh, in previous conversations, we've talked about things that the individual can do to protect their own information from cyber criminals, uh, making sure their antivirus software is up to date, uh, enabling two-factor authentication. But let's talk about some pieces of critical infrastructure. They're connected to the Internet. What are they and how can uh, nefarious actors do harm through them? Yeah, it's very interesting. Unfortunately, most of our power grids and oil refineries and, and all of the uh, national equipment uh, for energy and power is connected directly to the internet via devices called uh, PLC controllers, uh, programmable logical controllers. Um, and, and these devices basically give access to administrators to, to maintain and, and monitor those solutions. 
but unfortunately, as you said, they're, they're right on the Internet. So uh, hackers uh, have the ability to go out and find out where they are, uh, potentially gain access to them, but actually more frequently just perform denial of service attacks on them so that they cannot be uh, monitored or, or viewed and, and as a result cause some type of damage. What uh, uh, pieces of infrastructure, you know, when, when they're, they're owned by a company or a utility or a, a large entity, is it the, uh, the government, is it a, uh, a utility, or is it a large private company or a small business that's at greatest risk? You know, really the small businesses that are supply chain organizations for these large organizations are typically the, the uh, targets of these types of hackers because they are more easily, uh, you know, able to gain access to those. Uh, however, uh, even some of the large organizations that uh, work in hand in hand with the government uh, are at risk simply because these devices are, are so old and um, not as technical as, as they could be. Now, new devices are being developed at all times, but these PLCs and, and SCADA devices have such small uh, geography on them that it's hard to put uh, security software in them. So what they do instead is they put them behind security devices, trying to segment them from the Internet and secure them in that manner. Um, yet there's always some type of access uh, to these devices. And, and the typical type of access occurs as a result of some type of malicious use of an authorized device. So somebody has their machine that's on the network. They click on something uh, that, that puts a virus or something on them, and now people can gain access to the inside of the firewall systems and bypass the perimeter-based security solutions. Well, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Jerry Irvine, CIO of Prescient Solutions based in Chicago. Still ahead in Technology Thursday, finding the right balance of children and tech. This is Chicago's all-news station. News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. The United Nations General Assembly votes to suspend Russia from the UN Human Rights Council. A special report coming up from CBS News. Technology Thursday setting a good example for your kids through your use of media and technology. And we'll also get some help in deciding when the time is right to help your child get their first credit card. WBBM Business. The markets are lower, but not by much. The Dow is down 35 points. The NASDAQ is down 66. The S&P 500 down one and a half. We have 42 degrees right now in Chicago under cloudy skies, topping out at 45. Wind chills, though, in the 30s. A southwest wind at 21 miles an hour, gusting to 30. It's CBS News special report. Ukraine says it is grateful for a decision to suspend Russia from the United Nations Human Rights Council, saying war criminals should not be represented in the body. In favor, 93 against 24 abstentions 58 draft resolution a slash es dash 11 slash l4 is adopted here's ukraine's ambassador to the un russia is not only committing human rights violations 
It is shaking the underpinnings of international peace and security. And Russia's ambassador. What we're seeing today is an attempt by the United States to maintain its dominant position and total control to, to continue its uh, uh, attempt at human rights colonialism in international relations. Via interpreter, the Senate has voted to suspend normal trade relations with Russia and Belarus. CBS News Special Report. I'm Matt Piper. It's 1232 on the noon business hour. Markets are, well, they were in the red, but now there are some uh, indices are ticking positive. We're joined by Chris Johnson, market strategist with the Johnson Research Group based in Cincinnati. Chris, thanks for joining us today. In the last uh, 20 minutes or so, the uh, markets have made uh, quite the about face, uh, uh, trending towards positive territory. Why that sudden change in direction? Well, you get that little mid-shift wind, I guess you could say, change in the afternoon. You're familiar with those in Chicago, where everything all of a sudden goes a different direction. Saw this yesterday after we saw the Fed minutes later in the afternoon. One o'clock is that hour where we're tending to see a little more volatility during the normal days. I think that's what you've got, some buying interest. You have some key indices that are sitting on major trend lines right now. Market's trying to hold on to what it's got. That's the bottom line. The uh, stock market and just doesn't like uh, higher interest rate environments. They like easy money. And uh, so if, if you wanted to make a couple of bets on just the overall trajectory of the market in a higher interest rate environment, um, it's probably going to be lower. But at what point uh, is there some sort of uh, area of equilibrium in which uh, investors like where things are and uh, get back into equities? It's really hard to put a finger on that right now, Rob. If you look at it in January and December, we came off a period where investors were especially emboldened or very optimistic about the market. They were euphoric. We've seen this before. They match up with market tops in the past. What we're looking at right now is a period where investors are kind of digesting what's going on. Higher interest rates, inflation. Um, obviously, the job market's good. We've got that going for us. But it's hitting everybody where it counts, which is their spending. We'll see some numbers next week, CPI, PPI, that are going to help to figure that out a little bit more. But for now, the safer place is some of those defensive areas of the market. It's utilities. It's healthcare stocks. There's been a rotation there. As per your question, where we find that balance point or that equilibrium, I think we're still months away from that, especially when it comes to the NASDAQ 100 and those technology stocks that are still pretty highly valued and they're more interest rate sensitive. So it's best right now to kind of take a little bit of a cautious view for the market, especially as we head into what I think is the most important earnings season in probably the last 10, 12 years or so. Historically, as you look at interest rates, uh, we're still at all-time lows and substantially lower than where the federal funds rate was in the 1990s or even in the latter half of the 2000s, 2006, 2007. How does this interest rate takeoff, though, differ from previous times in which interest rates took off? Well, we've got that quantitative tapering that's going to be going on right now. That's a little more heavier hand. It's something the market's not used to seeing. Typically, it's just been the interest rate question, how higher interest rates going to go, how fast. You've got a little bit of an extra, call it a degree of difficulty right now with the Fed trying to pull or loosen up their, unwind their balance sheet. Investors aren't aware of what that is going to do to the liquidity markets, the credit markets out there, and how that is going to slow things down on top of interest rates. So as I mentioned, you know, you put the two of those together, and that is the biggest difference 
besides what you pointed out, which is just the, the absolute low level that we're coming off. Remember, we dodged or we tried to dodge, held out on going negative like we've seen so many other central banks do. And I'm glad because that would have been one of those situations that opens up just a Pandora's box for the uh, credit markets. But this is going to be a little bit longer and a little bit uh, not slower because I think the Fed is going to pick up the pace, but a little bit more deliberate over time in terms of how the credit markets are unwound. And that's going to be a little confusing for investors on Main Street. Chris Johnson, market strategist with the Johnson Research Group in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up on Technology Thursday, making sure children aren't overloading on tech. Loaning useful information each weekday. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Technology Thursday in a world full of gadgets and electronic devices. It can be a challenge to keep kids from overdoing it. We welcome in Jennifer Jolly, the Tech Life columnist with USA Today and founder and editor-in-chief of Techish.com based in Seattle. Jennifer, thanks for joining us today. I was just reading through your tips for caregivers about trying to uh, reach the right balance between uh, person time and screen time for your kids. And uh, mm-hmm. Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle began uh, running through my head because I feel like I, I, I'm the worst parent ever. I have uh, violated all of these things. I am not setting a good example. And uh, it, it's it, it, it's I don't want to maybe I am making excuses for myself, but it is very easy to fall into all of these traps. It is so difficult. So first. Well, go a little easy on yourself because we are growing up with technology as well. So it's not like we started out 20, 30, 50 years ago, you know, since the dawn of time, we've known sort of how to help our kids, you know, make better choices around screen times. No, we're just figuring that out for ourselves. So there are some guidelines, but for any screen time at any age, even our age, focus on quality over quantity. I'd say if if that's all that you remember, it's that. It, you know, just like you teach your kids, if you're going to eat some candy, you got to eat some healthy stuff too. It's the same thing with technology. I, sometimes I feel like that's the easiest way to explain it. I mean, yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, sitting down with the iPad and, and watching Encanto, for example. Uh, if you want them just to sit still and while you and the other adult in the house uh, run some errands or fold laundry or take care of some other household right. tasks. But if it's, you know, hour three of uh, of, of watching <laughs> streaming Netflix kids shows um, like Bluey, right. uh, then, yeah, maybe it's <laughs> we, we've overdone it just a little bit. And, yes, it's time to dial back well that's right and you don't want to turn them loose with no uh safeguards in place you don't want them on youtube for hours on end you don't want them on tiktok for hours on end so the new guidelines from the american academy of pediatrics the latest um is only video chatting for kids under the age of two so it's basically as little screen time as possible for under age two they can watch maybe sesame street or wonder pets maybe 18 to 24 months is an hour of day screen time. So uh, that's, you know, consistent limits. So 18 to 24 months, as little as possible, uh, video chatting with grandma, uh, you know, grandpa, little classic Sesame Street or Wonder Pets. Um, Above that, ages two to five, one hour a day. Again, quality over quantity. And then a, a 
Older than that, consistent limits on screen time for children ages six and above. So, of course, as you just said, the toughest thing is to mirror, you know, is to really lead by example. No phones at the dinner table. Put the phones away, drop off and pick up from school. You know, you you really, families everywhere really need to focus on family time that doesn't involve screens. And then very quickly, I want to tackle the uh, the subject of and maybe this is the subject for another column, and that is uh, Alexa etiquette, uh, because I don't know about if, if other parents know this, but uh, your kids can scream at the Alexa device, especially if it doesn't give them the song they want. <laughs> I, I, I've there there have there have been many a morning where I've I've awoken to uh, hearing someone screaming at the Alexa saying you know we don't talk about please play we don't talk about Bruno uh, one more time so I wonder if that's another component <laughs> of uh, of of cyber etiquette and technology etiquette and children. I think it's great to get something uh, like Circle uh, Disney Circle. Um, gadget or an Eero, E-E-R-O, an Eero device where it's very easy to set limits. Like you just basically unplug the Alexa capabilities for a certain amount of time for the day and then the kids can't figure it out and you're like, oh, I don't know. It's just not working. Um, it's most experts recommend waiting as long as possible to uh, delay kids' exposure to screaming at Alexa, online bullies, child predators, texting, distractions of social media, not to take it like too scary too quickly there, but the key in all of this, pay attention, lead by example, try to spend more off-screen time than on, period. Well, thanks for joining us. Jennifer Jolly, USA Today, Tech Life columnist and founder and editor-in-chief of Techish.com. And uh, joins us this time tomorrow for Entrepreneur Friday and still to come, helping your kids learn how to properly use a credit card. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's fairly common for parents to be asked to co-sign for their children's first credit card. Let's discuss the strategy with Matt Schultz, Chief Credit Analyst with Lending Tree, based in Austin, Texas. Matt, thanks for joining us today. At a long time ago, uh, having a credit card for a child seemed like an extravagance, but in this uh, increasingly uh, cashless society in which uh, debit cards and credit cards are the norm, uh, it's not that far of a reach anymore. No, it's really not. And issuers make it pretty easy for a parent to add their kid as what's called an authorized user on a credit card. And that means that basically the parent is still the main account holder on the card, but the kid gets a card with their name on it and is able to use it, um, hopefully under the supervision of, of the parent. And then uh, very quickly, Matt, uh, what are some, uh, what, what's like a, a, an appropriate age uh, in which a child should receive uh, his or her first credit card? And what are some uh, you know, basic ground rules uh, that, that as a parent you should know? Well, by by 18, a kid is uh, should probably have their own credit card or at least be considering it. But you could start as early as 15 or 16, adding your kid as an authorized user on your card, and it can help them build credit. You don't even necessarily have to give them the card. The biggest ground rule in all of it is to communicate because you have to set expectations and boundaries with the kid to make sure that they know what they expect of you. 
and what the consequences are if they've spent too much. Well, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Matt Schultz, Chief Credit Analyst with LendingTree based in Austin, Texas. You'll find past programs and later today, a podcast of this hour at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.